Okay, I invite you now, please, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans, as we will pick up where we left off. Again, just for context, I will read up through verse uh, 17. So please give your attention to God's word. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if, by some means, now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established." That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So as we said earlier, we got through the first four verses of chapter one, and we're still in this section, which is the greeting. So again, this is a letter written to a church a particular group of people at a particular time to address particular circumstances. And here, Paul, like normal, as he's writing a letter, opens it up with a word of greeting. And here he is introducing himself. He introduces himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. So he gives gives them sort of a threefold description of how he views himself in his ministry to the church. He is a servant. He is a slave of Christ. He has been bought from the kingdom of darkness, brought into the kingdom of his dear son, and now his purpose in life is to serve Jesus Christ. And he does so in the form of of an apostle, one of these uh, specifically called people who were gifted and separated unto service of the church by God himself. And it says here, separated to the gospel of God. So he was separated for a particular purpose, and that is to proclaim the gospel. And in Paul's case, to proclaim the gospel to the Gentile church. And we talked a little bit about this gospel. The content of the gospel is Jesus Christ. It is, the gospel is about Jesus Christ. He is the gospel. It is the gospel of his life, his death, and his resurrection. And everything that he did for us uh, through his life, which is he lived in perfect accordance to the law of God so that he could give us his perfect righteousness that we receive by faith. And then he died on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for our sins to to pay the penalty, to appease the wrath of God for our sins. That is the content of the gospel. 
And he says, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, whom he also describes here as uh, in two ways, both uh, born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and then also declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness. And we looked in depth at that last week, how uh, this is Paul kind of bringing in his what he calls his two age paradigm, his two age way of looking at things. So he came, Jesus came according to the flesh. He came according to this age, this fleshly age. He assumed our weakness. He assumed our frailty in our flesh. But then he was declared to be the son of God. He was always the son of God, but he was declared in the sense that he was crowned king. It was, it was made known that now this Messiah, the son of David, is now the reigning king, the son of God. And he was, it was through the resurrection of the dead. He is the first one now to be resurrected into a glorious body. He is the first one out to partake of the age to come. And then through our faith in him, through our union with Christ, we live in this sort of already not yet um, uh, kind of way in which we are experiencing to some extent the glories of the age to come now, but in a spiritual way through our union with Christ. And then this age to come will be manifested completely fully when Christ returns at the end of the age. That's the recap. Now, as we go on to verse five, it only took four minutes for that recap. Okay, that, that's pretty good. So as we go on now through, you know, you're, probably, you're probably wondering, so why couldn't you do this, do this in four minutes last week? We would have been a lot further along, right? So as we go on to verse five, then he says, through him, that is Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Now, it is, of course, through Christ that we receive grace. It is Jesus Christ is the manifestation of God's grace to us. It is because, as, as, as we read in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Love is a form of graciousness toward us because he is giving us what we do not deserve. That is what grace is. It's unmerited favor. So it was before God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So it is through Christ that we receive grace. But it also says here apostleship. Now, again, you have to understand this idea of apostleship. There's, it's a word that just means a messenger, someone who is sent, an envoy. Now, in the case of Paul and the other 12 disciples, it carries a special meaning. But for us, it just carries that general basic meaning of now through Christ, we too now are messengers. We too now are envoys to the world to share God's grace through Jesus Christ. So we have received this apostleship, but it also says here we have received this idea of, it says here, obedience to the faith. Uh, the Greek literally says the obedience of faith. And that's the mission that we have. It is to bring about the obedience of faith in the world around us. Now, this phrase has generated a lot of ink in commentaries. What does it mean, this obedience to the faith or this obedience of faith? Uh, I'm just going to boil it down to you in three options. There are three options here. Uh, the first one is the, uh, the objective sense here. So the obedience of faith, meaning obedience to the content or the teaching of the faith. We see this kind of, uh, kind of way of speaking throughout the, the Bible where he talks about, I want to explain to you the faith, or I want to share the faith with you. That is, they, when they say that, that is using faith in an objective sense. It basically, it just boils down to the, the teachings of the Bible, what we believe. 
You know, if we were to say that, it would be, I'm going to share the faith to you, or I'm going to explain to you our faith. It, we could say, well, we can look at like the Heidelberg Catechism or the Belgic Confession of Faith. It's a little summary of what we believe. That's what some people say, the obedience to the faith. So obedient to the content or teaching of the faith. Second way of looking at this is a subjective sense. So and that would be sort of like saying a faithful obedience. So it's talking more about my own obedience, my own faithfulness to obey the teachings of Christ. The obedience that sort of springs forth from our faith. And then the other one, this is kind of a technical term, but it's called exegetic, which just sort of means that these two phrases, obedience and of the faith, are sort of explaining one another. So it's like the obedience then which consists in faith. That's the third way of understanding it. Now, all three of these meanings are somewhat plausible and valid in this sense here. I, I favor the number, the second one, the subjective one. So a faithful obedience. Um, though I, w- I won't die on this hill. This is, <laughs> you know, in other words, I don't think this is something that we can say dogmatically. This is exactly what it means. But it seems to make the most sense to say that what Paul is saying here, the obedience uh, to the faith or uh, a faith, it's, he's saying it more like a faithful obedience. That's what we're calling people to do here. We've received grace and apostleship for a faithful obedience among all the nations for his name's sake. Then note also too here this, this phrase here, all nations, this calls to mind the idea of the Great Commission where Jesus, before he ascends into heaven, has his gathered disciples with him there on the, on the hill outside of uh, Galilee and, and, um, and, and proclaims to them what our mission statement is as a church, where he says, go therefore into all nations and make disciples. So that's the main command, make disciples. But as you're to do that as you go forth to all nations. And then the way to do that is by teaching them what I've uh, taught you and by baptizing them. So baptism and, and, and discipline or discipleship. But you need to make disciples of all nations. And here, too, Paul is saying, we, are, we have received this apostleship. So he's including the, the Roman church, too. He says, we have received this grace and apostleship. So we've received a mission, sort of like the Blues Brothers. We run a mission from God. You know, if you've ever watched the movie, The Blues Brothers, or maybe that's just a Chicago thing. But uh, uh, anyway, we're on a mission from God. We're on a mission from God to bring the obedience to faith to all nations. And then here in verse 6, Paul says, Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Now, if you remember a couple weeks ago where Paul here, you know, we talked about this word called. It's used three times in this, just these first seven verses here. Paul refers to himself as one who is called, who has received a, a summons in a sense, a, a, uh, a personal uh, mission to do something here. And it says now here in verse six, we also now are the called. We are also summoned by God and we are the called of Jesus Christ. And that's what the church in a sense is. If you think about it, the word church, the Greek word for church is ekklesia. And if you were to take that word apart and look at its meanings, it means those who are called out from the world or whatever. Now, we don't want to just kind of reduce the meaning of church to that. You know, we're the called out ones. But in a sense, the idea here carries this idea from the Old Testament where the people of Israel were often called a, an assembly or a congregation. 
And the idea here is that God would call his people to worship him. So the church is, in a sense, is the, is the people of God assembled together. Right now, we're the church. Individually, we're not the church. But when we're assembled here together this morning, as we are now, and as we will be in, in, a, in about 45 minutes to worship, we are the church gathered together. And here, this idea is we are also the called, the church here, the Romans, are those who are called of Jesus Christ, specifically by Christ for a purpose. We are called to be the sheep of his pasture. We are called to belong to Christ. And then in verse 7, he says here, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God. Again, here's that third use of the word called, called to be saints. And that word there, again, we are summoned, we are called of Christ to be saints. Now, this is not saints like in the Roman Catholic sense where we have to be near perfect and have to have like so many works of, of whatever, you know, to, before we achieve sainthood. The idea of saints, again, means someone, again, who is separated, someone who is set apart for a particular purpose. Uh, the root word for saints there is, is holy. You know, you get the same... It's the same words that you would use for sanctified or made holy or things like that. We are called apart. We are set apart to be saints. We are set apart to be those who are called to Christ. And then he goes on to this typical greeting that you see in most of, the, most of his letters. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's just a common greeting that he puts in all of his letters He's, he wishes them grace. Most letters in that period would just say grace. They would just use the word grace. But here he's saying grace to you and peace. And he says that from God, our Father, and Lord Jesus Christ, because it is only from God that we receive grace. It is only from God that we receive true and lasting peace. Now we move on to verses 8 through 15. I told you we'd get through more verses this week than we did last week. So now after he greets them, like here in the, in the first seven verses, the verses 8 through 15 are sort of like a prayer. So this is, again, a typical way Paul writes his letters. He greets those he's writing to, and then he, he prays on their behalf. And that's what we see here in, in uh, verse 8 as he, des- as he describes his prayers. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. So he begins by thanking God for the Roman church. And again, this, like I said, is a common practice that Paul used in all of his letters. He would always, you know, when he writes to the church of Philippi, I thank my God for you, this. And so he's, he's just thanking God for the fact that, that you exist as a church. This is, this is a good thing. This means that the church is going forth, that the gospel is going forth, that the kingdom is being built, the kingdom is spreading. And he's just thankful that God is doing this work because it is God who does the work. And after greeting them, he often prays for the congregation, Jumi wrote. And, and note here that Paul doesn't thank them for their faith. He doesn't say, I thank you that you guys are so faithful and so good and doing all these things. He thanks God for their faith. He thanks God for their faith. And, and he thanks God through Jesus Christ there. So now it's subtle, but I think what this phrase is teaching us is that faith is a gift from God. That's what we believe. Faith is a gift from God. It is something that God grants to his people uh, through the working of the Holy Spirit. 
<clears throat> Perhaps we may have mentioned this before. I think I may have mentioned this before. Uh, in theology, there is a, um, an idea that is called the ordo salutis. That's not a made-up word, Mark. It's, it's Latin. <laughs> it just means order of salvation. Uh, and this is just a fancy way of saying that the benefits of the work of Christ are applied to believers by the Holy Spirit in a particular way. You can kind of sort of order the, the benefits of Christ as they're applied to us. We are first called of God. We are elect chosen. Then we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That regeneration brings new life into us. And then we, are, uh, then we respond favorably in faith to Christ and repent of our sins. And by that faith, then we are justified. We are made right in God. And then through our Christian life, we're being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit uh, uh, preserves us, the perseverance of the saints, and then eventually we're glorified. So there's an order there. You can't say we're glorified. You, know, you can't say you're glorified before you've been regenerated. You can't say you, you have faith and repentance before you've been regenerated. You can't put justification before faith. It's just a way of sort of logically putting these things out. And that's how we kind of see it in the Bible. That's how we experience it in our lives. Now here, faith and repentance are aspects of our salvation that are worked in us by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2.6, you don't have to turn there, but it talks about believers being made alive in Christ. In fact, Ephesians 2 starts off with says, now you were born you know, you were dead in your sins and trespasses in which you were born, in which the way you walked along in this earth. But then he says, but in verse four, he says, but God, through his abundant mercy and grace, made us alive together in Christ. So this idea is we were first dead in our sins and trespasses, but God. And that's one of my favorite phrases in all the Bible is but God, by his grace, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. Again, John 3 3 also says where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, Nicodemus comes up to him and he says, You know, oh Lord, we know you're a teacher sent from God uh, who is wise above all these things. And then Jesus then turns around and says, Unless one is born again from above or born again by the Holy Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Which is interesting because Nicodemus didn't ask him how to see the kingdom of God, but Jesus knew in his heart what he was thinking. And he tells them, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless. So there's a condition that must be met. And that condition is you need to be born from above or you need to be born again. The word is ambiguous. It can mean both, born again or born from above. Now, theologians call this regeneration, born again or being made alive uh, with Christ, is when the Holy Spirit takes a person who's dead in their sins and trespasses and then makes them alive. He gives them new birth. He... he we are, we are alive physically, and then when the Holy Spirit brings regeneration, we are now alive spiritually. And then once regenerated, the Holy Spirit then again also works in our hearts to bring faith and repentance. So that each person then who has been regenerated now responds, they hear the gospel. I mean, I don't mean they just hear the words. They hear with true hearing. They're able to hear now and respond favorably. They turn from their sins and repentance and they turn toward Christ in faith. And that is why here Paul in verse 8 thanks God through Jesus Christ for the faith of the Romans uh, because he knows that this faith is worked in them by God. 
And this idea of through Jesus Christ just means that it's because of the work of Christ that any one of us are saved. Now, we can go a little further here. Now, why Paul is thankful. But he's, he's thankful also because he says their faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, at the end of the letter, at the end of Romans in chapter 16, verse 19, Paul says something similar to the Romans. He says, for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. Now, what an amazing thing it is to be said of a congregation that their faith has been proclaimed to all the nations, that everyone around knows about your faith. I mean, I think it would be great to be able to say, and it would warm my heart to be able to say that the faith of Emmanuel Reformed Church is heard throughout the state, throughout the country, throughout the world. And notice also what is implied here by the statement, more than just any personal benefit that comes to the Roman believers for their faith in Christ is the fact that their faith is being proclaimed in all the world. Again, this means that the gospel of the kingdom of God is advancing. When the faith of believers is being proclaimed in all the world, that is just a sign that the kingdom of God is advancing. It is taking ground. It is reclaiming ground that has been lost uh, to the usurper, Satan, when he caused man, when he caused Adam and Eve to fall in the garden. The, the world, in a sense, became the devil's. But now as the kingdom of God is advancing, this ground is being reclaimed. It is, and, and, and God is staking his claim back to the earth. The proclamation of the gospel is a proclamation that the kingdom of God is now at hand and is advancing. It is moving. Now, the kingdom of God, we understand it is not like any other earthly kingdom. It doesn't advance politically. It doesn't advance militarily. We don't see, we don't have elected offices for the kingdom of God. We don't have an army for the kingdom of God in the sense like we have a standing army for the United States. But it is moving. It is a spiritual kingdom. And it is advanced. The kingdom moves when the gospels proclaimed and when people come to faith in Christ. That is how the kingdom advances. Think of the parables Jesus tells, particularly in Matthew 13, where he, he tells a number of parables and he says, the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like, you know, first he says the kingdom of God is like a seed that you sow in the ground. And then you, you know, depending on what type of ground you throw the seed on, you're going to get various results. If you throw it on hard ground, the birds are just going to come by, fly down and pick up the seed and eat it. If you sow it on ground that is, you know, like the people up in Seattle are putting in like, you know, two inches of topsoil. Well, you may get a little bit of a sprout, but then it's going to die because it has no roots and it can't get any nourishment. If you put the seed in the weed choked area, it may grow up, but then the weeds will choke it out and it will die. But if you put it in a nice open fertile soil, the seed grows and it yields a crop. He also says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, this teeny tiny little seed that when you plant it, it becomes this enormously big tree where the birds can find rest in its branches. So he talks about the kingdom of God being this teeny tiny little thing, but it will spread out and it will grow and it'll, it'll become an enormous thing eventually that even provides shelter for the birds of the air. Now, as we go to verse nine, it says, for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers. I'm going to go on through 10 making request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. 
So here now, Paul is calling God to testify to his truthfulness. You know, so he says, God is my witness. God knows what's in my heart. This is, this is my true heart's desire here. And, 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 the, and the, what, the, what he's calling witness to is that he serves God with his spirit or with all his being in the gospel of his son. Paul is always focused on his purpose, which is the proclamation of the gospel. In fact, when he was converted on the Damascus Road, if you remember that experience in Acts chapter 9, it was made clear to Paul that he was set apart for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what, when he was, he was told to go to, um, I think it was a guy named Ananias in Damascus, and then God talks to Ananias and says, I'm sending Paul to you. And Ananias is like, excuse me, what was that name again? It's like, isn't that the guy who's persecuting the church? And God's like, yes, it's the guy who's persecuting the church, but I have called him. I have set him apart. He is going to be my, my witness. He's going to be my apostle to the, to the Gentile nations. This is the works for which he was set apart as a servant of Christ. But Paul calls God as witness that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. Now, you know, we have to understand this is a little bit of hyperbole. Okay, It's not like Paul was literally unceasingly praying for the Romans 24-7. It just means that whenever he prays, he's like, I think of you. I'm thinking of you. You're on my heart. And, 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 and what he does is, you know, he says, I can't stop praying for you. And he's regularly lifting up these dear saints in prayer. And it also reveals his true desire, which is to finally succeed in visiting Rome in person. That was one of his goals here in writing this letter is to let him know, says, I want to come and visit you. I want to come and visit you, but, but he, we're going to find out later, he says he was hindered until now. But he, he says here, he says, look, I want you to know that in my heart, I'm always praying for you, and I also, also want you to know that I was praying to find a way that I can make it to visit you, that I can come to you. We know Paul wanted to go to Rome, not only to visit with and encourage these Christians, but he also wanted to use Rome as a launching pad for missionary trips to uh, beyond, to Spain. We learned that in Romans 15, 28. I want to come to you and impart something with you. And I also hope to then move on from here and go on to Spain. Paul was always uh, looking for ways to spread the gospel to places where it had not been heard. His missionary zeal here is on full display as he seeks to push the boundaries of the kingdom and again, continue to capture new ground for the Lord. But he's not so outwardly focused that he, he also doesn't see the necessity here of coming to Rome and building up the saints at Rome. Again, remember, this is not a church he, he founded. This is a church that was more than likely founded by people who were at Pentecost, uh, in Jerusalem at Pentecost in Acts 2. It says that we had you know, Jews from around the world were there, and then... You know, you would imagine once Pentecost is over, they would just gather up and go back to their home places. You know, it's it's believed that there were some Roman Christians there, Roman Jews there. And when they went back to Rome, they set up a church there. So Paul wants to go there, not only to go on to Spain, but also to to build these dear saints up as well. And that's what we see here in verse 11, where he says, I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you so that you may be established. And then furthermore, in verse 12, that is that I may be encouraged together with you 
by the mutual faith of both you and me. Now, it's interesting because it's very easy to look at the Apostle Paul's life. You know, you read his story in the book of Acts, you read his letters that he wrote in the Bible, and you think, well, Paul, you must be some kind of super Christian, right? You must be some kind of like, you know, I bet you if we took your shirt off, there's a giant S on your chest that says, you know, I'm super Christian. Um, and, and, you know, why not? I mean, here, here's the guy who preached boldly. He had great missionary zeal. He planted dozens of churches. He worked miracles in his, in, in his ministry. He had spiritual visions. That's what he says in first, uh, yeah, first Corinthians 12 when he says, you know, I was caught up in a vision or second, second Corinthians. So I was caught up in a vision to the third heaven and, you know, I saw wonderful things. He had visions. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write half of the books in the New Testament. How can someone like this, this super Christian, be encouraged by the faith of a normal Joe Schmo Christian? Right. How can a guy like Paul receive encouragement from me or from you? Right. I mean, I'm not a super Christian, you know, unless somebody has been hiding some secrets here. I don't, I don't think we're none of us are super Christians. Right. How can Paul receive encouragement from us? I think this shows to us the maturity and humility of the Apostle Paul. He didn't think himself so high and mighty that he couldn't learn or be encouraged by the simple faith of a brother or sister in Christ. And I think that's a good and proper mindset to take. We're, none of us are so mature in our faith that we can't learn something from somebody else, right? If anything, Paul thought of himself actually rather lowly, particularly coming out of his history. He talks about himself in 1 Corinthians 15, where he's talking about what I've learned, I've imparted to you. He says, you know, he talks about how Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and how he appeared to, to Peter and to John and to the rest of the 12 and then to 500 brothers at once. And then at the end of that, <coughs> he says, he also appeared to me as one who was born out of due time. In other words, like he re- he's referring to himself as sort of like a stillborn Christian, you know, one who comes late to the party. You know, and, and then he also called himself the least of the apostles. You know, I mean, super Christian Paul called himself the least of the apostles. I mean, how many people even know all the names of, <laughs> of the apostles? I mean, Peter, Paul, you know, or Peter, James, John, Matthew, you know, it's like there's a couple of names after that that are, you know, that people forget. It's like there were, there were 12 of them where Judas hung himself. So then there were 11 left and then they brought Matthias in. So now there's 12 again, but I don't know anything about any of these other guys. Peter wrote a few letters. John wrote a gospel and some letters. James, his brother, didn't write anything. Uh, Matthew wrote a gospel. That's it. Okay, what about the others? You know, it's like, but here Paul says, I'm the least of these guys. I'm the least of these guys. <clears throat> he also refers to himself as the chief of sinners. In one of his letters, he writes to Timothy. He says, I am the chief of sinners. Now, why did Paul have such a low view of himself? Well, he had such a low view of himself because he recognized his history, right? Well, what was his history before coming to faith in Christ? He was a persecutor of the church. He rounded up Christians and and brought them in for basically to be executed because they were denying what he believed at the time was the true faith, which was a very strict form of Judaism. He was a former persecutor of the church and one who was unworthy of the grace of God shown to him. But he goes on to say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. 
he accepts what he is. He accepts the fact that his life is the what way it is. And that's why God calls him. He calls him because he is this type of person. He's like, I'm going to use you now. You were a persecutor of the church. Now I'm going to use you to be a builder of the church. All this to say that Paul did not think he was beyond learning, that he had somehow arrived. That's what he says in Philippians. He says, not that I've arrived, not that I have achieved the goal of perfection, which is why then I strive on with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my strength. I strive then to make it my own. That is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And again, this should be our mindset, right? It should be the mindset of all of us, whether you're a mature Christian for many, many years or you're a babe in Christ. None of us is beyond learning from one another or being encouraged by one another. So then Paul says, I want to come to you so that I might be encouraged together with you so that we can share fellowship with one another. Now in verse 13. He writes, now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. Now again here, Paul reiterates his desire to come to Rome, but now reveals that he had been prevented in his attempts to come until uh, to come to them. So he has often wanted to come to them, but has been prevented for some reason. Now, is he unlucky? Is... Uh, is it the fact that he just he can't catch a break? He can't find a boat to Rome? He can't get on the train? The train tickets are sold out or whatever? You know, is, is he just unfortunate? No. <laughs> I mean, we learned from Ruth, right, last week, Ruth 2. You know, uh, Ruth just so happened to be in the field of Boaz, and Boaz just so happens to come out and see Ruth in the field gleaning. No, no, he's not unlucky. We know this is the Lord's doing. Keep your finger in Romans 1 and turn to Acts. It's just the next book over to the left, to Acts chapter 16. So in verse chap- chapter 16, verse 6, uh, Luke, the author, writes, Now when they, that is Paul and his uh, compadres, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, They tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. So this is Paul's second missionary journey. It comes after Acts 15. Acts 15 is where they have the Jerusalem Council. And now he's, he's getting ready to go out on another missionary journey. And he doesn't want to cover the same ground that he covered before. So he wants to go into new regions. This is Again, remember, this is Paul's mindset. He's a zealous missionary. He wants to go to where the gospel hasn't been preached before. So he says, I desire to go uh, <clears throat> through Phrygia and into the region of Galatia. But he says... We were prevented by the Holy Spirit. Now, I mean, does this mean that the Holy Spirit came down in a physically manifested form and said, don't go here? Probably not. I don't think so. I think what happened is that some sort of circumstances were uh, met by Paul and his company that just prevented them from going there. 
And the same thing is, okay, then we, went, we come to Mysia and we try now to go into Bithynia. We try to go somewhere else. Okay, so the Holy Spirit prevents us from going here. Let's go over here. And he says, nope, the Spirit did not permit them. Again, I don't think the Spirit literally came and said, Paul, don't go here. I think what happened is that something happened, weather, whatever, circumstances, providentially orchestrated by God to prevent him from going there. And then, okay, so we can't go here. We can't go there. So what, where do we go? And then they get a vision. They get a dream. It says, of a Macedonian man says, come over here, come to Macedonia and help us. We need your help. So then he had concluded, this must be from God. <laughs> Maybe this is where the Lord wants us to go. The point being is that Paul wanted to go to Rome. He wanted to go to Rome bad, but he says he was prevented. He was prevented in a sense by God himself orchestrating events, providentially arranging things, so that Paul could do other kind of missionary things, and then eventually he would get to Rome. And we know at the end of the book of Acts, Paul does eventually make it to Rome. He makes it to Rome in chains, under arrest, but he makes it to Rome. I mean, you know, he was going to go to Rome one way or the other, and he finally gets there. But here again, Paul's purpose of wanting to go to Rome, other than as a base to travel to Spain, is to, as he says here, reap some harvest among you as well, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Now, this idea of a harvest is common. In, uh, one in the New Testament should be very common to many of you who actually do harvest. Uh, every year you harvest your grain. The idea here, of course, is that our, our Lord used this metaphor, right, in Matthew chapter 9, where he says that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, I'm sure if any one of you had a true bumper crop, you too would be praying for laborers to come and help you harvest all of your grain so that you can, you can reap the harvest that, that the Lord has provided for you. But this idea of harvesting or planting and watering teaches us that even though God ordains all things that come to pass, he also ordains the means to those ends. God has ordained the building up of the kingdom of God and that, uh, that the kingdom of God will be through the proclamation of the gospel. That is how the kingdom of God is advanced. It is, proclaimed, it is advanced through the proclamation of the gospel. This requires planting. This requires watering. And this requires harvesting to be done by us. We are the instruments that God uses in the building of his kingdom. The planting of the seed, the the, the, the evangelistic efforts that we do to spread the gospel, the watering, the encouraging of people in the faith, and then the harvesting, the reaping, bringing those people in to the church so that they can be blessed, they can receive the gospel, and they can become part of the kingdom of God. Now, the part that God does, he does the growth, right? We can't make disciples in the sense that we can change a person's heart. That is something God does. He brings the growth. We do the planting, the watering, the harvesting. God brings the growth. Paul neither planted or watered the church at Rome, but he desired to be part of the harvest. So he desired to be there to reap a harvest. He wanted to come there and encourage them and also help the church grow as well. Well, I'd hope to make it to verse 15 by the end of this morning, but I think we'll stop here. It is 10, 15. Uh, so next week we'll pick up verses 14 and 15, and then we'll also look at verses 16 and 17. That should, that should take up most of our time next week as well.